you would, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. If you happen to grab a guest Bible, we're on page 772 again now for uh, the second week in a row. We're going to pick up this morning where we left off last week in this chapter during the season of Epiphany. Uh, Last week we did some work to identify those mysterious travelers from the east that many of us have uh, every year at Christmas time, included in our nativity scenes there on our on our, uh, our shelves and on our coffee tables and throughout our homes and on our greeting cards. Uh, we took some time to talk about the Magi and uh, who they were and who they weren't, or at least who we don't know that they were. Uh, but this morning we're going to turn to their counterpart in the story, one that history identifies as Herod the Great. Now, that name Herod, of course, is very familiar to you for uh, for all of you who have uh, read your New Testaments, it is not the same Herod that was in Jesus' adult years. That would have been uh, one of Herod's children. Um, so Herod is the first of the Herodian dynasty, and he is, um, he is the, the Herod that is running the show when Jesus is born. And so that's the, the Herod we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of time uh, here in a few moments and have uh, something like a, a history lesson I know I probably just turned off half of you with just a single uh, snap of my fingers right there, uh, but I promise to do my best to keep you engaged, and hopefully the, there will be fruit that comes from uh, that time of looking into to history a little bit together. Uh, but, but first, let's look here in Matthew chapter 2. We read verses 1 and 2 last week, so we're going to pick up this week in verse 3 and read down to verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, that is, that the Magi had seen a star and had followed the star and were searching for the king of the Jews. As was everyone in Jerusalem, he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him. Now, last week we were introduced uh, to the theme of contrasts in the Gospel of Matthew, beginning here in this chapter. And that theme began with this idea that Jesus, in his from his earliest days, is rejected by those who should have welcomed him, and he is welcomed by those that we think should probably have rejected him. And this, of course, is a theme that's going to be more fully de- developed throughout the gospel. If we were to spend the next number of weeks uh, you know, working our way through the gospel of Matthew as a whole, we would see this theme uh, built upon, expanded, amplified, uh, the closer you get to the cross. But that theme is also going to be developed additionally, even right here in this very chapter that we're in. Last week, we focused on the Magi there in verses 1 and 2. And they, of course, as we noted last week, represent the wisdom That comes from knowing and trusting in the scriptures. And they, of course, were limited in their knowledge and their understanding of the scriptures. We we see that in these verses this morning. They, they They go to Jerusalem because in their minds it makes sense for a king to be born in Jerusalem. And so apparently they were lacking 
prophecies such as Micah that, that were more specific about where the Messiah would, would come from. And so uh, they instead were, were acting upon the knowledge that they did have. And that's a, a profound thing that we see uh, through their example, that uh, though they needed more guidance, nevertheless they pursued what they did know with the utmost of their own powers. The ones who, in Jewish and Christian eyes at least at that time, who should have been fools, were in fact the ones who were wise. But what about the other characters in the story? Well, verses 3 through 8 introduce us, well, they reintroduce us to Herod, but they introduce us to a number of other characters here that we're going to turn our attention to. The the text mentions Herod, of course. Then it mentions everyone else in Jerusalem. So there's a, a larger group of people that Matthew has in mind here. And, of course, he mentions the leading priests and teachers of religious law. And, and if we start with them, we would, we would note, at least with what little the text has to say about them, it's, what's interesting to me is what the text doesn't say about them. As far as we can tell, this group of, of officials or authorities on the subject, well, they seem apathetic at best. There's a, a seeming total lack of interest in the ones that should have been the most interested in what was going on. And yet, despite the report of this star, well, they didn't lift a sandal to go check it out for themselves. Apparently, they couldn't be troubled to make the six-mile journey from from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And we see, in at least as best we can tell, that though they were close to the Messiah, perhaps geographically, they seem to be very far from the Messiah at the level of the heart. And as for everyone else, that is Herod and everyone in Jerusalem, Matthew says, he does give us very clear insight into their hearts. He says, and NLT translates it as, they were deeply distressed. And I looked that word up this week, and I spent some time looking at the other occurrences in the New Testament. By my count, there are 17 other times in the New Testament that Greek word is used there, for deeply distressed. And every single one of those times, with the one exception of uh, a time in John where it refers to the waters of a pool of water being stirred up, every single other time that word is used in the New Testament, it means pretty much the exact same thing. It's the disciples' fear seeing Jesus walking on the water. Right? They weren't like, all right, Jesus is revealing something about himself to us. And we're so excited that he's walking across the waves. No, they were, what? Terrified. (laughs) They were deeply disturbed to see Jesus walking on the water. It's the the trouble that arises from doubt, Jesus said, when he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do Do not be afraid. Do not be troubled deep inside of you because you doubt me or because you don't have faith. Instead, he says, trust me. Have faith in me. Don't be deeply disturbed. This word is also the word that describes Jesus' own condition of his heart as he arrives at Lazarus' tomb and he sees the, the, the crowds that are, that are mourning his passing and says when Jesus looked at the, the sorrow and the, the, the grief of those around him, he was deeply disturbed. And then you get the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. This word is the status of Jesus' own heart in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he feels the weight of the world's sin, as he ponders 
what the father had, had asked him to do. You see, this, this word describes a, a deep, deep disruption of the, of the heart, of the soul, of the, the inside of a person. And that's what Herod and apparently everyone else in Jerusalem felt upon the arrival of the Magi and their report that the king of the Jews had been born. I think Matthew here is laying a foundation for us. He wants the reader to see Jerusalem as the epicenter of hostility to Jesus, right? It's the, it's the same city that later we'll, we'll be told in uh, chapter 21 that as Jesus is entering the city triumphantly, it says in verse 10, the whole city was in an uproar, right? It wasn't, it wasn't all praise that, that accompanied Jesus' arrival to the city. The whole city was turned inside out. The same city, we'll hear six chapters later, full of people who will stand before Pilate and say, we will take on the responsibility of his death. And so Matthew is, is laying a foundation here in chapter 2 that will, that will be expanded upon, that will be built upon, it will be amplified all the way to the very end of his gospel where, where we will see that the same ones who are troubled at his birth will be the same ones who will take his blood and put it on their own hands. What a contrast to the Magi indeed. But let's talk a little bit specifically here about King Herod. Now, this is where I want to enter into a little bit of time of, uh, of, his, of history, a little bit of a, a brief history lesson. I want to talk for a few minutes at least uh, about the intertestamental period. And maybe some of you have, have heard about that period of time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, some three, four hundred plus years. Uh, maybe you're familiar, maybe, you, maybe a long time ago you heard the stories and were kind of aware of what was going on there, and maybe you forgot, or maybe you were really aware and you're, you feel like you can check out for the next few minutes. I hope you don't do that. Uh, maybe you just don't care. Listen, that was me when I was a, a, a young Bible college student, and I, and I came to my, I don't remember which class it was, probably, probably my New Testament class perhaps, and we spent, you know, a, a a session or two talking about the intertestamental period. And in my mind, I was like, I didn't come, I'm, not at, I'm not at like apocrypha school. I'm at Bible college school. I'm not here to learn about the non-Bible. I want to hear about the Bible. Um, but of course, now I can look back and see the wisdom there is in learning about uh, the history of, that Jesus himself came into. And so that's why I hope we can do here together for a few minutes, if you will permit me. As you Recall, following the reigns of David and Solomon, the, the people of God were divided into two kingdoms, right? You had, you had the, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And, and over time, in time, as the, the people of God were, um, through the judgment of God, taken captive and into exile, their lands were conquered in turn by Assyria, and then Babylon, and eventually through Alexander the Great's Macedonian Empire. And so uh, the people of God weren't in charge of their land. They, they, they were taken out of their land. Eventually, they came back. We know through the, the, um, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the stories of how they came back. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the walls. They rebuilt the city. Um, but they weren't in charge of, the, of their land. There were other empires who had conquered them and who were at war over the land, even themselves. Uh, the the, the uh, successor states of Alexander the Great's empire, that's the, the Seleucids in the north and the, the, uh, the Ptolemies in the south, 
uh, they battled continuously over, over this little sliver of land, this, this region of the world that, um, you know, on a map, uh, I guess makes some sense, but it never seems to make as much sense as, as, uh, as it should. Why this area is so important to so many people. Um, and so we, we find in history there these warring nations trying to take control of this piece of land. And of course, in 200 BC, uh, of those two successor states, uh, the Seleucids in the north, they won. And, um, and with, their, with their empire came a rise, a drastic rise, in the influence of Hellenistic culture. That is Greek life and culture. It was, an, an, uh, uh, it was taken, it was, it was, you know, the dial was turned up. And the pressure was for uh, the Jewish people in the region to assimilate, to embrace the language, to embrace the customs, to embrace the religion, to embrace sort of the worldview. And naturally, anytime that happens to a group of people, there are some who, who react and they swing really far this direction in response to that. And with that, you have what we, known as, uh, what we know now as the Maccabean Revolt. Have you ever heard the name Maccabee? It's okay if you haven't. But if you have, you've heard of the Maccabees. The Maccabees were a family of Jewish priests uh, led by uh, a, well, he was a Jewish priest, but he was more like a guerrilla warlord named Judas Maccabeus. His nickname, by the way, does anybody remember his nickname? The Hammer. How cool of a nickname is The Hammer? I know that my nickname one day in history will never be as cool. Like when people remember me, it's not going to be, you know, Pastor Sean the Battle Axe or something like that. It'll probably be something like Scribner the Pale or some sort of like pathetic (laughs) name. That's how I'm going to be remembered in history, I'm sure. But Judas, uh, he is credited with defending his country from the Seleucids. He fought back against this, this empire. And he's credited with preventing the, the imposition of, of Hellenism deeply, more deeply into, into Judea. He's credited with preserving the Jewish religion. In fact, the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah, which means dedication, is a commemoration of his work in basically cleansing the second temple. That is the temple that was rebuilt in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah as God's people came back. Solomon's temple was destroyed, but it was rebuilt, and then it was polluted with Greek gods and Greek customs and all that stuff, and Judas uh, cleansed it of all those idols, and he rededicated the temple, and that's why Jews to this day celebrate Hanukkah. And so this is a massive figure in Jewish history, massive figure in intertestamental history. Together, he and his brother established what history knows as the the Hasmonean dynasty. This is a time where the Jews ruled themselves. This one little window of time. When all these other nations were battling for for the space, uh, the the Maccabees took over and ruled, and um, and that was in in some ways a a high point in in the history of of that time. But they remained divided. The people were divided. Hellenism had sunk its its claws, its roots deep into the, the fabric of society and and, and the, the collective worldview and the, the perspective of, of people. And, and so it was during this time when you see the rise of the Pharisee, the Sadducee, and the Essene factions. I know you're familiar with those names. And this is sort of the, their Genesis story. They're all divided on uh, who are we going to be as a people? Are we going to be distinct from the world? Are we going to assimilate into the world? Um, how do we view our identity? How do we, how do, what do we believe regarding the Torah, the, the law? Um, 
what, what is this nation of people going to look like? The Essenes, of course, were known for their desert communities. Uh, you may have heard of the, the Qumran community. That's where we got the Dead Sea Scrolls from. So we're really grateful for the Essenes because they, they uh, took the word of God and they, they so preserved it that people 2,000 years later were able to uncover their scrolls and, and, and corroborate what we already knew to be true about the Old Testament. It's an incredible story. Look up the Dead Sea Scrolls sometime. And, and figure out and, and learn about what's going on there. The Sadducees, of course, these are the aristocrats. These are the, the wealthy upper crust of society. They were the ones that were perfectly content to assimilate. Uh, they wanted to just fit in with whatever whoever was in charge. They wanted to be by their side. Uh, they were masters of, of political compromise. And as a result, the Pharisees hated their guts. Because the Pharisees were those who were vehemently opposed to assimilation they did not want to make compromises. Instead, they wanted to demand that every Jew um, observe the temple purity laws even outside the temple. So they, they wanted to go the exact opposite direction and be so distinct from the world that uh, it would be very, very easy to tell them apart from everyone else around them. Okay? So this, this dynasty rules until 63 AD when at last... The Roman Empire decides to arrive on the scene and flex its muscles, and the, uh, the Hasmonean dynasty is broken up, the kingdom is divided up, and client states are installed. And who do you think is the first one installed in Judea? Herod the Great. Herod the Great. He shows up, and he's put into place the son of an Edomite, Edomites were the descendants of Esau from the south. So as far as the, the faithful, you know, Torah-committed Jew, uh, he is not one of them. He's not from the child of promise. He's not through Jacob's line. He's through Esau's line, and, and therefore he's not a proper Jew. He's the son of an Edomite, and, and yet from the Roman point of view, he is a, a Jew. The Romans felt like putting him in place would be a good thing, as we'll talk about here in a moment. He was, he was a Jew like the rest of those people, and, and, and yes, he, he publicly identified as one. His father was, uh, had embraced the Jewish faith, and so he, he proclaimed that publicly and, and tried to present himself as a Jew, but he didn't follow the law. He didn't you know, worship or observe the things that he should observe, and the people never accepted him as one of their own. So here you have a man who was installed against the people's will, who tried to pretend he was one of the people. And he unironically gave himself the title king of Judea. He gave it to him, and he meant it. He was serious about it. And yet his primary directive was not just to rule. His primary directive was to carry out the wishes of Rome. If he wanted to keep his position, he had to keep Rome happy. And what could Rome possibly want? What do you think would make Rome most happy under the, the governance of Herod. Peace. That's what they wanted. They wanted him to keep peace. That, that famous Pax Romana, you remember the, from your uh, high school uh, history class, the Pax Romana, that, that, that peace, that Roman peace that we, that we know about from history. You know, I think about it every single time um, I'm taking uh, Interstate 64 getting ready to, to hit the West Virginia Turnpike. Does anybody know why? Because the last exit before the first toll booth, 
is to the city, Pax. Pax, West Virginia. I've never been there. I'm sure it's quite peaceful. <laughs> That's when I need Kevin at the drums to give me a little, little rim shot. I think about Pax Romana every time I see Pax, the sign for Pax, West Virginia, which is ironic because no one is thinking about peace when they're on their way home to visit family. And yet that's, that's on my mind when I drive by there every single time. The Pax Romana, that 200 years of uh, the golden age of Roman history that spanned the rule of, uh, of the five good emperors, beginning with Nerva and ending with Marcus Aurelius uh, of of gladiator fame. You remember the movie Gladiator? There's Marcus Aurelius. He was the last of the five good emperors during that golden age of Roman peace. And that was a period of time marked by uh, the, um, the expansion of the empire and uh, prosperity and, of course, peace. There was peace in the empire. People just weren't at war like they had always been, and the world had never known anything like that prior to that time. And how was that peace achieved? And you would, you would be right to say, well, through the flexing of military might. Right? The threat of Rome coming in to, to, to crush a rebellion was enough to keep most people like, where they belonged. But that wasn't the primary way that the peace was achieved. The peace was achieved primarily through the fostering of goodwill with the locals. If we, if we throw them enough bones, if we let them keep their, you know, their customs for the most part, we let them worship their gods for the most part, let them have some sense of you know, ownership of, of what's going on, for the most part, we can keep the peace. And that was Herod's directive. Keep the peace in Judea. And so, what did he do? Well, he started by marrying a Hasmonean princess. So this, this person who is the, the, the one who replaces a dynasty keeps peace by marrying one of the princesses of that dynasty. And then he appoints her brother as, a, as high priest. Wow, that's a you almost wonder, that might be a good way to, to lose the peace. But it was his effort. Keep the peace. He, he cut taxes. Everyone wants that. At least you would think. These days, I don't know anymore. But anyone with a sane mind, boy, I'm, I'm, real, I'm treading on thin ice here, aren't I? Um, let's just say he reduced taxes, and I'll just leave it at that. He reduced the taxes. He put policies in place that resulted in you know, economic prosperity. Um, he had massive building projects. He's the one that built the, the whole city of Caesarea. Uh, he's the one that, that fortified the, the city of Jerusalem. He built the, 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 uh, uh, the um, fortress of Masada. He, he, all these, these building projects and things that enhanced the, the area, the life. It's like a, a developer coming in and, and, and flipping a whole city upside, our whole region upside down with, with development projects and bringing prosperity and, and hope and, and wealth and, and activity and entertainment and arts and all this stuff into the region and, and revitalize and renewed things. That's what he's doing. Oh, and he also happened to build the most magnificent palace known to man atop a man-made mountain. And it blows my mind to think what people in the ancient world were capable of building. Look it up sometimes. It's called the Herodium. Look up the, the, the not now, don't get it in your smartphones now. Make a note and do it later. Look at, look at the, 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 the man-made mountain that Herod built his, his palace on top of. But here's the thing. Of all the, the building he did and all the things he did to try to foster goodwill with the people, perhaps the thing that mattered most was that he expanded the temple 
He built upon the temple to a size and a magnificence never seen before, even in Solomon's day. And that would have been what they called Herod's temple. And that was the temple that Jesus would have known. But here's the thing. Herod's called the great, but Herod had a dark side. He had a dark side. Like all despots, he was paranoid over potential rivals, right? He didn't, he didn't want anybody to encroach upon his power, his grip, his position. And so, that brother-in-law that he appointed priest, remember him? Well, he was drowned in Herod's pool. Herod had him drowned in his own pool. And that Sanhedrin, that group of uh, religious leaders who, you know, pretty much really in, in effect governed uh, the people of God, um, he had 46 of them put to death. 46. Along with his mother-in-law. And some of you are like, amen. No, I'm just kidding. You would never say that. Um, that, uh, that aforementioned wife, he had her killed. Along with two of their children. Why? Well, because due to their Hasmonean blood, they represented, they became threats to his position, threats to his power. No one was too close to him or important enough to him that they were safe. In fact, Augustus Caesar is reported to once have said, it is better to be Herod's dog than one of his children. That's That's the type of person we're talking about here. That's who the Magi stood before. That's the region, that's the history, that's the profile of this moment. And this person, a man occupying the throne of the most hotly contested region in the world, desperately clinging to power, a man who the historian Josephus says at this point in his life was on the edge of sanity, a crazed maniac in a position of power. And I hope that we're beginning to see the contrast that Matthew was aware of and that Matthew had in mind as he's putting these parties together in his narrative. And he's not doing it artificially. It happened in in history. But he's telling us about it for a reason. He wants us to see the contrast between the wise men from the east and this maniac on the throne. And from that, we can deduce that from the very start of Jesus' life, There are two camps of of people regarding him. There's two types of attitudes, two postures towards the one who was born of Mary. One that is full of praise, one that is full of welcome, one that that, that comes to offer something, and then there's the other that is full of hatred and opposition and wants to silence and put it out of existence. And the contrast will deepen the closer we come to the cross. The light of God had come to the darkness. And yet there were many who would not receive it. As John puts it in his prologue, in his gospel, he came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his very own people, and even they rejected him. And I wonder, where you and I and people who live now in the 21st century of this world, 
with all that's going on around us? I wonder if the same things that prevented Herod and the priests and the people of Jerusalem from welcoming the light of Christ into their lives then aren't the same things that stand in the way of people welcoming the light of Christ into their lives today. I wonder. A rival with a rightful claim to the throne of our hearts? We don't want to give up power, do we? We don't want to surrender the control. If there is a, a throne of my heart that governs my life, well, by golly, I want to be the one that sits on it. And I will crush anyone and anything that threatens that. How about the prospect of discomfort? I suspect the people of Jerusalem, knowing full well who Herod was and what he was capable of, they were deeply disturbed probably as much over the prospect of civil unrest as anything else. That the, someone claiming to be the son of David was arriving there with this guy in power? Oh, please, please don't upset the apple cart. Please don't, don't poke the hornet's nest. Don't do the, the thing that's going to flip the world upside down. Things are bad. We hate Rome. We hate Herod. We hate the situation. But don't make things worse. Someone like Jesus could flip the whole world upside down as he might still do today. When people consider what the implications of receiving him into our lives might be. Or perhaps the thing preventing many today from welcoming the light of Christ is just good old-fashioned apathy and disinterest. Like the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, well, we just can't be bothered with Jesus, can we? We've got too much else going on. Too many other things are more important. I'm doing just fine without him, thank you very much. You know, we, we like the idea of Jesus. We like, we like the idea of, of a good man, a, a good teacher, even a, someone who's come to do something, a, a deliverer, a, whatever, whatever word we want to put in the, fill in the blank here of who he is, as long as it's benefiting me somehow. But the moment that, that he requests anything of me, well, then I get, I get troubled. Six miles? That's, that's far might as well be six million miles. But here's the thing. I happen to think that Jesus is worth the journey. I happen to think that Jesus is worth the trouble. I happen to think that Jesus is worth the risk. And I think Matthew, I think Matthew feels that way too. You see, there's one more contrast in the passage here that I want to draw your attention to that we absolutely cannot afford to miss. One that Matthew fully intends for us to see, but maybe it wasn't immediately apparent to you the first time I read through the passage. And it is a contrast of kingdoms. A contrast of kingdoms. When Herod asks the priests and the teachers where the Messiah was supposed to be born there in verse 4, their response, as I mentioned earlier, came to him from 
uh, Micah chapter 5. And it's really that many pages back in your, New, in your New Testament. You don't have to turn back there, but if you want, it's only about that far. So Micah's at the end of the Old Testament, Matthew's at the beginning of the New. So they, they go back to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, to give Herod the answer to the question. So as I turn back to Micah 5, 2, here's what my Bible says. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. Now go back to Matthew, chapter 2, and look at what they say there in verse 6. This is the, the teachers and the priests telling Herod what, what Micah says. They say, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Now there's actually several changes there, and we don't have time to dig into all of those. But what stands out to me the most, what is most important here, and Matthew does this elsewhere throughout his gospel. It's one of his quirks. It's one of his characteristics. And, and he takes liberties as he does, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to take multiple Old Testament passages or prophecies and merging them as if they were one. That's exactly what he does here. He takes Micah 5, 2, and then he builds upon it with the spirit of Micah 5, 4, and then he combines it with 2 Samuel 5, 2, which says, the Lord to David, you will be the shepherd of my people Israel. You will be Israel's leader. Now, why would Matthew do that? Why would he do that? Why would he make that change? Yes, it's to make a point that Mary's son will be a ruler. He is a ruler. Yes, it is to, to, to draw the attention of the reader to the fact that he is indeed the legitimate heir to, to David's throne. But I wonder, as we're, as we're taking in all that we've just heard about the, the, the history of the region and the, the hostility and the wars and then the, the tyrannical despotic rule of a madman like Herod, if Matthew doesn't want to draw out also the very essence, the very nature, the very character of the rule of the Messiah. It will be nothing like anything of the world. Be nothing like the kingdom of Herod that will forever be known until the revisionists finally get control of everything and change all that history too. His kingdom will forever be known as one of bloodshed and aggression and cruelty. And we haven't even gotten to the worst of it yet. We're going to come back here in, um, in two weeks and see the worst thing that Herod ever did. But the kingdom of Jesus Christ will be different. It is fundamentally different. His kingdom, well, it'll be marked by care. Because that's what a shepherd does. It'll be marked by provision. The, the sheep aren't there to, to fleece that you might gain something for yourself. No, I'm there to serve them. 
I'm here to provide for them. I'm here to care for them. I'm here to guide them. And if they're in a place where they're not receiving what they need, well, I'll guide them to a richer pasture. And if there's some sort of threat to their lives, well, I'll put myself in between them. I'll put my life on the line. And if just one, if just one happens to go astray, well, I'll leave the 99 to save them. Does that sound anything like Herod at all? Does that sound any, like, anything like any earthly ruler with power at any point in human history? He is a ruler for sure, but he is a ruler who is the good shepherd, who lays his life down for the sheep. The ruler of a kingdom that ascribes greatness not to power or to lording, but to weakness and to serving. A kingdom that will forever be known as one of love and of mercy and of peace. Micah 5, 4. And he will stand to lead his flock with the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed. For he will be highly honored around the world and he will be the source of peace. What a tragedy. What a tragedy to see Herod and the priests and the religious teachers and the people of, of Jerusalem to see what they missed out on. As do all who cannot be troubled with Jesus. But it doesn't have to be so with you. That tragedy does not have to define your life. You and I have this morning to welcome the light into the darkness. To welcome him in. I don't mean in a superficial way. I don't mean in, a, a, in an in name only kind of way. I don't even mean you, you get to welcome him for the first time ever because many of you already have. Most of you, if not all of you at some point, have. Wel I'm saying welcome him afresh in a deeper way, in a more real way, in a more significant way, a way that truly impacts your life. You have an opportunity today, and, and I as well, to surrender over the rule and the control and the responsibility, the, the very throne of our hearts, to give it to his tender care. He's proven he can, he can be trusted with your heart. He's proven that the nature of his rule is one of shepherding care, not despotic care we have a, this morning the opportunity to present him our weariness to to bring to him our heavy burdens i love this morning in our time of uh staff prayer at eight o'clock before everyone went to their several ways um the, the prayer that pastor jeff prayed and he said lord help the people that's you help the people when they come here to not leave their cares and burdens and concerns outside but to bring them to bring them in why would he pray that 
because he knows the shepherding heart of our God. Jesus himself, I would say it was even more, of a, more than an invitation. It was, almost a, it was a command. Bring your cares to me. I want you to. I want, I want your burdens. I want your brokenness. I want the concerns of your life. I'm big enough to handle them. I want you to bring them to me. I want you to present me your weariness. And I want you to receive from me my rest. There's an exchange he wants to have happen. He takes our bad stuff and he gives us his good stuff. Take my yoke upon you, he says. Let me teach you, for I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden that I give you is light. The contrasts of Matthew, yes, between two ways of receiving him, but also between the two types of kingdoms that are represented here. The contrasts of Matthew present us an invitation. An invitation to come and to receive the shepherding care of Christ for you. And my prayer is that is exactly what you will do in these moments to follow as we sing, as we conclude the service, and as we go back out into the world. Lord, I thank you that you have sent your son, a ruler from ages past, Before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. <laughs> Thank you, God, that you have sent your son, your one and only eternally begotten son, to come and be the, the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. Lord, I pray that by the, the inspiration and by the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, you would enable your people to respond to this invitation in faith. Yes, Welcoming Jesus in a deeper way comes with risks. Yes, it will require something of us. Yes, it absolutely will necessitate a, a fundamental surrender of my heart over to him. But as the scriptures and as the testimonies of your people throughout the ages will affirm, it is worth the trouble. It is worth the risk. It's worth the journey. Lord, may there not be six inches between me and you in my heart. Six millimeters, six human hairs, whatever measurement. Lord, help me, help us to be as close to you as possible. We know we will only ever be as close to you as we want to be. So Holy Spirit, if you have to reshape and reform our desires so that that is the desire of our hearts then do that we give you access right now we ask you to come and do what has to be done that we might fully belong to you that we would be your people and that you would be our god may it be so we pray for your great name's sake oh jesus christ our lord amen